Welcome to the Faith and Justice Network podcast. I'm Danielle Mayfield, and I interview people who um, are just doing some of the work that we're all interested in, which is how to be a Christian, um, you know, today, here and now, in 2022, with everything going on. And I'm really excited because today I'm going to talk to Damon Garcia, and he's a newer to me voice, but... He, his voice is one that I think is going to be especially important in 2022 and beyond. And there's just a couple of reasons why I think that um, one of them is, Damon, you're the first person I think I've ever interviewed that is like a YouTuber. And that's cool. Oh. That's like a different <laughs> platform, I think, for a lot of people. So that's exciting. And also, um, you just have a background. And correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of studying leftist ideology and and being friends with people who are uh, more leftist than they are progressive. And so I just think that's a fascinating, um, you know, blend of things that that you're talking about. And I had the honor of uh, reading your book, The God Who Riots, which is coming out in August, and it was so good. And it was good in that I loved it so much. It also really challenged me. And that's just my sweet spot. You know, I was like, this gave me a lot to think about. So thank you so much, Damon Garcia, for coming on here to talk to me. Um, I'd love it if you would just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me on. I'm really excited. And I also got the opportunity to read your book on Unruly Saint coming out in November. Both of us are on Broadleaf. And I love that, too. And I'm really excited that we both get to put those out. And yeah, I grew up in evangelical church, a Pentecostal church. And it was interesting because I think I kind of had an avenue for thinking a bit differently from the very beginning because the Pentecostal denomination I was in was started by a woman in the 20s. And so it there already was this idea that oh yeah, there's a lot of churches out there who could go a bit further and we're already a bit further. But of course, there was so much that they needed to still be challenged on and go further on. And they're able to do amazing exegesis on the scriptures about uh, women in ministry and talk about how like the different ways they apply, the historical context, how they apply today. But they couldn't really do that with the rest of the Bible. And so I feel like I had these tools were given to me as I got into ministry in that church and in that denomination that I just kept using to grow until I hit the ceiling and kept going. And so eventually I couldn't uh, last in that denomination, even though I tried really hard as I kept learning about different types of theologies and mainly liberation theology and being really inspired by that and different ways of reading the Bible. And I try to synthesize everything for a really long time. And I was a youth and young adults pastor. And eventually it just became impossible. And um, then I left right before I was actually going to do the official licensing pastoral interview. And because I knew I couldn't answer those questions, honestly. And then that, that was years ago. And then I started to actually be honest about the things that I believe and started uh, making new friends and making different kinds of stuff on YouTube and talking about the ways that I've, I was already thinking, but couldn't really say out loud. And as I kept doing that, I realized, oh yeah, now that I'm in this environment, I'm still like at the beginning, 
I at the point where I was before, it felt like I was kind of on the edge of things. And so I just kept exploring and got into this kind of leftist side of YouTube, like left tube, some people call it, and was kind of like the Christian guy on in that left tube space. And I just kept uh, exploring those questions and making uh, videos and live streams with people more in that audience. And then I felt like I wanted to speak to progressive Christians who still have more room to grow, but aren't really sure where to look and feeling like certain spaces kind of have a feeling that we're all arrived. We have all the right answers. We have all the right solutions to everything, but feel like, no, there's definitely got to be more than this. And I've always loved that feeling that there's definitely more. We're on a journey. We're growing. We're developing. And so I'm hoping with this book that I just wrote and coming out on August 23rd to give people a few more steps, a few more things to think about as we are all growing and developing and this kind of stuff. So that's where I'm at now. And yeah, I'm excited to be here. That's so amazing. And and you were careful not to mention the name of the denomination you were raising, but I think I know what it is. Oh, can I say oh, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Foursquare? Yeah, Foursquare. I was like, Amy Semple McPherson. Yes. You're talking about that lady. I actually went uh, kind of on accident to the Foursquare Bible College, Life Bible College. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I was not a Pentecostal and I found myself there and that was a quite an interesting experience. So I... When was that? That was like in 2002, to 2000, okay. a little bit of 2004. I ended up dropping out because I was depressed. But anyway, Yeah, I'm, I'm going um, to drop out from there too. <laughs> Yo, I did online there? stuff. I did online <laughs> version. But I, Amy Semple McPherson is so much more interesting, especially when we don't have to like revere her as our denomination's founder. And um, like being friends with Charlie Chaplin disappearing for like a long time and then reappearing on the beach randomly and knowing know, knowing where she was like there's all kinds of weird she things. is so wild and yeah. i think there needs to be another biography of her i'm not gonna write it but yeah. i've been i think you already kind of mentioned some of the tension inherent in like um some pentecostal mm-hmm. like movements right there is a lot of room for some possible liberation theology, but then it so often can just turn into upholding the status quo and using some pretty abusive, like um, prosperity gospel-ish things on top of that. So I've, I've always been drawn to the charismatic and yet I finally had to come to the conclusion, like I'm not actually that interested in anything that wants to harness the power of God right for their own aims and instead i'm i'm gonna hang out with the mystics because they're just like god is super weird and we don't get it and that's like much better than a lot of what i've experienced from charismatics which is we have the key to um you know to god's power and using god's power for us and so sorry that's like a tangent but i am just trying Mm -hmm. to say like i really resonate with what you've said about charismatic movement and that kind of makes a lot of sense from your from your background and i'm just curious you know it's so hard to be honest and you said you know you found some of that on youtube um i just really still sense in your work like you're using everything in your past right you're using mm-hmm. 
that education you had to be to do ministry and you're still doing ministry. So I just want to affirm that in you. Um, but how has it been with like your community? Have they, you know, been with you on this journey? Yes, I, I am a part of a disciples of Christ church now, but I wouldn't consider myself a disciples of Christ Christian. It's just like the, the place that I go. And, uh, which is so refreshing. I'm sure a lot of people can relate with that where you can finally be a part of a church where you could just like sit in the back and chill. But um, as for the people um, in my audience through YouTube and uh, doing Twitch streaming and Instagram and stuff, it's been really cool to be able to see a lot of people go through this journey of growing up in a conservative environment and a Christian environment and feeling like there was something about this Jesus that was pretty radical and really inspiring, but it felt like everyone around them was holding this Jesus back in some way. And then when they could come across uh, my videos and people similar and the authors that I like and that we talk about, they're able to realize, oh, yes, I knew it. I knew that Jesus was so much more radical than what people were telling me. They just couldn't comprehend it. And being able to also feel like as they've left that environment and even gotten into political activism and leftist orgs to be able to realize that, oh, yeah, I always felt like the stuff that was being taught to me as a kid about Jesus and following the spiritual life was still connected to the things I'm doing now, but I didn't know how to put it into words. And one of my favorite things to do, and one of the main goals of this book I wrote, is to give people language to connect those things and realize that, of course, this is where your life is leading. You have not gone astray, as many people have probably caused you to believe. You have just been on one long, singular path and... All of your past has been a part of it. I love that so much. And that, you know, I asked this to every person I talked to on this podcast that kind of leads into this question because yesterday was Easter Sunday. Today is the day after Easter Monday. And I just want to know, like, how are you, how are you coming into this podcast today? How are you doing? You can tell as little as, or as much as you want, but I sent some themes between like, uh, for myself, I'll just go really quick is that yesterday was such a jarring day for me to see like a lot of white Christians on social media saying Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And I was like, what does any of that mean Hmm. when white evangelicals are literally trying to take power in every single place and using that power to further marginalize like historically oppressed people? Like, what does it mean? Like I was, I was like a ball of rage yesterday, which I've Hmm. never been on Easter Sunday, but it kind of makes sense that this is just a slow burn of COVID and everything happening. So anyways, how are you coming into this space today? Yeah, it was it was interesting yesterday. I even saw online on, on Instagram, the local t- Toyota do- dealership over here made a post saying, he is risen. And like a scripture saying, uh, he is not here. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And I was like, so I found it hilarious because I was like, this is so weird. Why is Toyota posting this? It's like, thank you, Toyota. Uh, or I don't know. But I uh, also tried to avoid <laughs> online yesterday because I knew there was going to be a bunch of... Um, Actually, I, I had a friend post 
because there's like general drama and everything a friend posts on twitter he was like i love today because there's 60 reasons to not be online basically <laughs> and just like all of these things to avoid um but yesterday I, I got to spend time with family luckily and that was awesome and i feel like i've really had fun being able to just make these christian holidays my own or my family's own and being able to not even think about oh yeah this is how it's usually done but this is how we do it but just doing it however we want to do it and so i am a little hungover today but i'm getting through it <laughs> and so it is uh it's cool i'm i'm glad that i didn't get to see as much problematic stuff yesterday <laughs> Well, you're wise. I mean, if you were like already knew it was coming and you, I think I was just like knocked over on my butt about it because I wasn't expecting it. And then I posted on Instagram and it like offended my mom and you know, all that stuff. It's just, it's just whatever. Also, I'm sure listeners can tell I have a cold, like I'm sick. So that also when I'm sick, I go to like existential despair faster than I even normally do. So, so that's how we're coming into this today, the Monday after Easter. And I want to kind of jump in and talk to you about some of your spiritual practices. And so I have some ideas of what some of yours are because I read your book. I, I watched a few of your YouTube videos. And one of the things that really jumped out to me is your engagement with scripture. Now I have born and raised in the evangelical church, read the Bible 10. I, I love reading other people's engagement with the scriptures and your engagement really brings some fresh stuff for me personally that I just love. So I wondered um, if you would, if you have other spiritual practices you want to talk about first, that's fine. But if you would want to share with us a little bit about how you approach the scriptures first. Yeah. I, yeah, I I think there's so much in the scripture that I'm still very inspired by and also inspired to keep on exploring and i think there comes a certain point when you explore all this stuff where you literally know where all the stuff in the bible you know everywhere to find it like you somebody could say a story or a verse and you're like oh yeah i know where that is which isn't normal like most people not at all my friend would play this game with his friends where he was like uh don't show me read a random verse in the Bible and I'll be able to tell you where it is. But for certain people, that's like, oh yeah, of course, that that sounds like an easy game. And so I'm lucky, I think, that I'm able to still be interested in the Bible even after all of that and still learn um, from the Bible and from various interpretations that I come across. And I'm also um, very happy to explore it as a part of uh, Enfleshed, which is uh, Enfleshed.com and a website that really tries to look at the scripture and liturgy from a liberative perspective. And so I get to write for their uh, monthly subscription service called Liturgy That Matters. And so they have a scripture that a a writer will look through and give an essay on specifically from liberative perspectives and intersectional perspectives. Um, and I'm one of the monthly writers for that. And so doing that, making it a part of my monthly thing means I have to explore the Bible that way too. And I, and I've actually been able to um, really value that because I 
get to learn new things as I explore that and write those. But I think um, for the book too, I was really excited to be able to give people a different perspective on stories and especially getting into historical Jesus studies from like John Dominic Crossan, Marcus Borg, Richard Horsley was a big inspiration on this book and being able to show people how radical these stories are. And it's especially a big focus of the book is Jesus last week where he goes into um, Jerusalem on a donkey and flips tables in the temple, which are both political demonstrations that are planned and organized, not spontaneous, which is how I learned it growing up. Like Jesus saw some things, got mad and flipped some tables when actually it was an organized event with people who would surround him and protect him. And that's why they didn't arrest them because they're afraid of the crowds. It says multiple times. And to even realize like, oh yeah, Jesus is sneaking back and forth every evening from Jerusalem back to Bethany through the Mount of Olives. Because if he were to stay in Jerusalem, then he would be arrested immediately when it gets dark. And to to see that, like to even realize that throughout the gospels, Jesus is literally running from the cops. And that's why he's saying, don't tell anyone about this healing that we just did. He's trying to avoid being caught and arrested early. And just that alone of reading the whole gospel from that lens, like changes what we're the, the way we understand what's going on. And then the, the time that he does get arrested is when his friends who are supposed to be keeping watch fall asleep. And so it's uh, yeah, I think it's, it's really exciting to be able to look at it through that lens and look through for the meaning. I think that's been a big shift for me is understanding that the important part of reading an ancient sacred text is the meaning. It's not a history book. It's not a science book. It's um, deeper than that. It's bigger than that. And it's communicating a truth that is so true that is beyond literal truth for many parts of the Bible. And so to be able to look for the meaning and then see that meaning today is, I think, so much healthier and exciting way of approaching the Bible today. Yeah, I love that so much. I mean, I think also Easter weekend really brought up for me just like how tired I am of hearing a dominant culture retelling of Jesus's last week, right? Which is all about, I need to feel shame for my, in my individual sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. You know what I mean? And I think your book really does flesh out like this is, this is Jesus who was, you know, standing up, making a scene, but like pretty intentional. I also saw something the other day that was, it was like a tweet that said something like one thing about Jesus is he's going to create some drama. And I was like, that's such a good way of putting it. Yeah. But he was very intentional about it. Like you said, and even so a few ways you describe things like, um, you know, Jesus calling what a den of robbers right? Or a den of thieves. Can you want to explain that a little bit? Because even the way you phrase that, I was like, I never heard that. And that (laughs) seems so simple, but has been denied from me because of who I grew up hearing this story from. Yeah. A den of robbers is not where people are robbed. A den of robbers is where robbers go and hide to avoid the consequences. And so Jesus isn't accusing the religious authorities of robbing people, even though there is that element, what he's really saying is that 
they are using the temple to hide and avoid confronting the injustice going on everywhere outside the temple. And they think that they could get away with hiding in the temple when God, the God of justice, obviously is not pleased with that, um, using this house of worship to hide and avoid the injustices that God wants us to confront. And he's also quoting Jeremiah, which I, one of the things, like you said, you were feeling like, I never heard this. One of the things I was upset that I never heard growing up was that Jeremiah had his own temple demonstration and they tried to kill him too. He just got away. And, and so he's quoting Jeremiah's words that he said when he was doing that. And even there, he, uh, part of Jeremiah's thing that he said, it begins with him saying something like, I, I know you will say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says it three times, like as a way of saying, like, I know y'all will say this is not the time and place to do this because this is the sacred, revered temple of the Lord. But this is the exact place to do this. Like, I feel like that's what's being implied there because you've turned this into a den of robbers while all of this injustice is going on outside. And yeah, it's just seeing, seeing it through that lens, like totally changes things and especially makes us think about how many people we know today who claim to follow Jesus and who also use their spiritual community to hide and their whole spiritual practices and religion to hide and avoid the injustices going on in our world. I'm so I'm so glad you said that because that's a central tension, even the tension of this podcast. I'm asking you what your spiritual practices are in part because I'm so tired of, you know, dominant culture, Christianity, it all being about including the spiritual practices. It's all about numbing you to the realities of an unjust and unequal world and feeling good about yourself personally, you know, going to heaven and escaping like personal responsibility to your neighbor here and now. And so honestly, I'm like, that seems what all of my spiritual practices I was given were to that end goal or, you know, to proselytize people, bring them to be a Christian just like me. So now I'm like, how do we create spiritual practices that are not like that, that do not make us feel comfortable in a world that is hurting people constantly, right? And so the, I just think what you said is so is so profound and so perfect. And I wanted to bring up one other thing in your book that really struck me is, you know, we can talk about Jesus and Jesus being liberative. And I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I can see that. Um, hmm. But what about for people of faith today, especially people of faith who grew up in, you know, maybe a tradition like mine where it's like orthodoxy is really upheld, traditionalism is really upheld, like not changing, always believing in capital T, truth is really upheld. I really struggled with how to say my changing is holy, right? Like my changing my perspective is actually from the work of the Holy Spirit in me. And I thought you did such a beautiful job in your book of sort of taking us through the, the story of Peter and Cornelius. I'm actually like not super great at remembering Bible stories. (laughs) Maybe I'm just like blocking it out. Right. (laughs) So I might get some of the details wrong, but right. When, when Peter, isn't it like Peter doesn't want to, share about Jesus to Cornelius, right? Because Cornelius is a centurion and then God kind of shows up and it's like all the things, you know, that you call unclean, I've made clean, right? With this mm-hmm. vision. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm probably totally butchering this, but you take that story and you're like, this is God saying like, it's good to change. I am giving you permission mm-hmm. to change in order to love people in order to like, 
invite more people into this community. So I'm so sorry if I butchered that, but that, that story just stood out to be so yeah. much. If you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the only thing was that uh, he didn't know about Cornelius when he had this vision. And then he, he got people saying, come talk to Cornelius right after. But in this, it, but before that it was assumed, of course, we're not going to go talk to Gentiles about this. This is, this isn't a Gentile thing. Uh, Jesus spent his whole ministry not ministering to Gentile, Gentiles. So, of course. Um, and then he gets this vision or this large sheet drops with all this food that he wasn't supposed to eat following kosher laws. And he hears this voice saying, get up and eat. And Peter's like, of course not. And the, the amusing part of that story is God telling or is Peter telling God I can't do that because God told me not to. And he's telling God this. And so it's like, and then it says again, get up and eat. Whatever I have called clean is clean. And so he does it in this vision. And then people come to his house saying, come speak to Cornelius. And then he realizes the meaning of the vision. But I think a lot of us have been in situations like that where we're introduced to the ways that we need to change, the ways we need to grow, the ways we need to expand. And we think, well, of course I can't do that because of the values and spiritual experiences I already have that goes against that. And I I think it was Richard Rohr said a long time ago that our, what was it? The, the last spiritual experience we have is frequently the biggest obstacle to the next spiritual experience it's like we hold on to the last truth that was revealed to us the last revelations and we and it could hold us back and we could say of course god i can't do that next thing because god told me not to but then we realize that not only do we need to expand but our understanding of god needs to expand and understanding of god's work needs to expand and so that being in the book of Acts should be a model for anyone who's resisting change and being able to hold on to tradition and not even realize the ways that tradition was shaped, um, do realize the new thing God is doing in the world and realize that this is part of the spiritual journey to be constantly developing, changing, evolving. And that's what it means to have a spiritual life now, which is, I think, really exciting for me to see it that way, because I think I grew up around a lot of ideas of um, do this and that so you can have arrived, basically. They would never use that word and claim to not have believed that, but that's how they acted. And I think of uh, the Spanish mystics, I think, especially understood this idea of growth, spirituality being growth and a journey. Everything was viewed through the lens of a journey. Like uh, you have all this talk of like from Teresa of Avila, San Juan de la Cruz about ascents and descents and ladders and stairs and uh, the dark night of the soul. Oh yeah. That's a part of the journey. That's some people think that that's the very end you learn and you grow. And then you start to question and doubt and you have this dark night and then it's over. And uh, Juan de la Cruz was like, no, that's just the very beginning of spirituality becoming so much deeper and more complex. And that's, 
I think remains inspiring me to me today is that this is a journey that we're constantly growing in and constantly changing. I love that so much. And I, I love how you do bring out how absurd it is when we are like, no, God, you can't be doing this. You know, you said this and mm-hmm. God's like, no, I, but I'm here to tell you that. And I just think it's such a perfect picture for, um, my engagement with, you know, my own faith community at many times, I feel that absurdity. Um, but instead of wanting to laugh, it usually makes me want to cry. But I think, you know, the whole continuum of human experience is is kind of held in that story. And I wonder if you see any overlap with, you kind of already mentioned that idea of this idea that we, you know, especially in white, evangelicalism right this idea that we have reached the pinnacle of god's revelation to humanity right and we have the truth it's never going to change we have to tell everybody about it you know do you see that sort of overlapping with capitalism and like our current economic state and our current uh views on capitalism i i don't know i just wondered if that would spark anything for you yeah that whole uh the end of history in the 90s we've we've reached the end once the soviet union fell this shows that of course capitalism is here to stay this is the pinnacle of um economic systems and i think when thinking about capitalism and uh anti-capitalism socialism and being able to think of alternative systems one of the basic things that i think can help people understand what people are talking about is First off, realizing capitalism hasn't always been here. We could point to a start date uh, a few centuries ago and being able to realize economic systems have evolved. Before capitalism was feudalism with with uh, lords and serfs and capitalism, you have employers and employees. And of course, we're going to keep on evolving. Why would we think that that this is it? And as we continue to think about the ways that we can be more free and have more autonomy in an economic system, we have to think of alternatives and there is a limit to capitalism. And many think that it's doomed to fall apart on its own, to, to destroy itself because of course there would be a limit to this. Of course we would keep evolving and changing and, um, have alternatives. And so I think it's really sad how a lot of people especially connect their love for capitalism and their love for Jesus and their faith and their spiritual practice and think that the goal of their spiritual practices is to adapt to the capitalist system and to accept that this is how it's going to be. This is the pinnacle and we must learn how to have peace within this system. And I think spiritual practices another way that they can help us is to help us realize that there is a deeper value to all of us a deeper value that we all hold that we're able to realize with our spiritual practices that is contradicted by our capitalist system that sees our value within our labor that we give to this system of endless production and endless consumption. And when we could realize that, we we are able to resist any system that dehumanizes us, that devalues us. And I think of even um, 
and the pedagogy of the press, Paulo Freire talks about teaching pe- uh, peasant workers in Brazil. And it would start out with the students self-deprecating and talking and talking about how the teachers are way more superior and way more smarter. And then at, throughout the process, they would realize their own inherent dignity and how he, he writes about how one of them said, they used to say that we were unproductive because because we're lazy and drunkards. But now we realize that's not true. We were exploited. And that right there is, I think, a shift that churches should really be trying to build within people. Realize you are so much more valuable than any of these systems claim you are. And you're being exploited and you deserve to be treated better, which is super rare within Christianity, this idea that you deserve to be treated better, that basic idea. Like there's, what is that? Uh, uh, the Ali Beth Stuckey book, this conservative Christian who was like, it's called You Are Not Enough. And that's okay. And like the whole thing is like, society's always telling you how good you are and how great you are, how beautiful you are, how perfect you are. But the truth is you're not and you need God and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, we that idea of like, oh no, you're good, you're perfect, you're great, that we get through like um, consumer branding and marketing that we, 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 I think, embrace that at times as a way of cope uh, with our insecurities of not feeling good enough and not feeling um, like we're great or that we deserve better. That's what we actually all believe. And any of this supposed entitlement that uh, older people claim that younger people have is really just coping with their insecurities. And we need to, I I think spiritual communities really need to show people that no, you are, um, you are good and you do deserve better. And so let's build alternative systems that are able to treat us better. Yeah. I mean, I never once heard that right growing up and like you deserve a livable wage, you know, people deserve to be able to afford housing. Like people deserve, right. To be able to feed their kids. And instead, you know, I was given sort of this like charity model, right. For people who were like lazy or just didn't make it for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. their own moral failing in society, like then good Christians can help them through a charity model. And I, I know like I was totally raised in that mindset, charity mindset, the colonizer mindset, you know, all of that stuff. Um, But as I become a little bit more involved in like some you know, protests happening in Portland and all that, um, even in my own neighborhood. I've been so struck by this idea of mutual aid and seeing it in action has been really powerful for me. And I would say what you're talking about is both this core doctrine of like our belovedness being made in the image of God, our belovedness should help us be able to resist dehumanizing forces in the world. And what should we do in response to those dehumanizing forces, which often overwhelm me personally? Mm-hmm. Um, I think mutual aid is like a great thing mm-hmm. to focus on. It's And it's a great spiritual practice. So I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that. This will probably be the last question I'll be able to ask you because of time. But um, yeah, okay. if you want to talk to us about mutual aid. Yeah. I think um, it's difficult because I think from one view – Charity is always the answer. And to just, if you, if you feel bad about all those who need help, 
just give to some charities. And yet we don't stop to wonder why are there constantly so many people who are in need of charity, which shows us that obviously that is not the answer, that it is much deeper, that it requires a complete restructuring of our entire system that keeps creating so many people that are in need of charity. And then I think as people start to realize the systemic causes, there's another unhelpful place that people could fall into and think, well, uh, helping people individually is not going to solve our problems. It's the system needs to change. So therefore, it's a waste of time to just help individuals. And that's a dangerous place to be in, too. And we need to learn how to do both and realize the importance of both and how I, I think of uh, Jesus like really had this understanding a lot as well. He assumed that, of course, the Roman Empire was going to be destroyed and that it needed to be destroyed and that all of these rulers were going to be pulled down from their thrones and the lowly will rise up. And he taught people how to feed people and heal people and show them the ways that we must live alternatively to these systems that we're resisting against and how to live after they're already destroyed. Because for Jesus, he assumed that God would uh, destroy the Roman Empire and that's what was coming and so did his early followers. And so, and, and I think that's like, I wish more Christians thought like that, uh, especially about the United States. That like, yeah, of course this isn't the system God wants and of course this is going to be destroyed. Um, but let's think about alternative ways to live and instead of this kind of nationalism that we see a lot. And so... I think being able to realize that it is also part of our faith and part of our spiritual practice to uh, do mutual aid, to find local organizations and to participate in that. And even though nobody is saying uh, that that Jesus calls us to do this, that it is so much deeper than that, that it is the the work of God that we are called to do. I think of... uh, This is one of my favorite parts of my book, too, where I talk about the parable that Jesus told about the the two sons, not not the prodigal son, but this other set of two sons where the father tells the sons to go work in the field. One of them says, yes, I will, and then doesn't do anything. And the other one says, no. But then later goes and works in the field. And then Jesus asks the religious authorities he's talking to, which of these did the will of the father? And they say the son who said no, but did it anyway. And then he says the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. And they're angry at this, of course. And so Jesus is trying to get them to see the people who are saying yes to Jesus aren't actually doing the work that they're called to do. And the people who are saying no are actually doing the work. And I think we could think of plenty of examples of that today. Plenty of Christians who say all the right things and affirm all the right things and yet aren't actually doing the work. And then I think especially a lot of people who have come out of fundamentalism, one of the things that gets them to really question everything is realizing, oh, there are so many non-Christians that are doing so much better work than the Christians I grew up around. And that's a real a world shattering realization when you grew up in, in that environment. And I think of um, this, this uh, 
the son who's like, yeah, of course, of course I'll do that. There's, I think, different versions of that kind of guy that we could think of today who says, yes, of course. There's the, the religious people who are able to say, yes, of course, to do the work of God, but not do much. But then there's also, I think, the nice, excited liberals who are able to affirm all the right things, say say all the right things, have that sign in their front yard who are like, we believe Black Lives Matter. Uh, I don't even remember the rest of them, but um, all of that. And then say, and then not actually do much, not actually help the people in their community and look up the different local orgs in their area and, and join them. And uh, I think there's many versions of that that we could think of, of people we know and people we've been and maybe people we are who say yes to the work, but don't do it. And I think being able to realize that mutual aid um, is the work, no matter what people say, no matter where people are coming from, no matter their motivation, I think really changes the way we see the work of God. And um, yeah, it's super necessary. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I I feel like I was introduced to what mutual aid is by my neighbors who, you know, most of them are refugees from um more like communal minded cultures and muslim cultures which are you know famous for their hospitality and they were basically like if somebody needs something like you give it to them and you trust that when you need something somebody will be there for you and i was like wow that is i'm fine with the first part you know being a white evangelical but like trusting that somebody will be there when I'm in need, like putting myself Mm. in a position where I give to the point where I might be at risk of needing, you know, that's something that Dorothy Day talked about all the time. And, and I just want to continue on with that. And it's so basic. We make it so complicated, but I think you talk about this in your YouTube videos. You talk about this in your book. It's so basic. Like we need to feed people. We need to clothe people. We need to shelter them from this horrific housing market, right? That is just swallowing people whole and we also need to advocate for their rights right in as far as like how they're getting paid how they're being treated like we could just start doing that and that would take up like all of our free time right and i and i think you know if capitalism falls or if it takes forever to fall like doing that work will be meaningful right and we'll be having you know making these pathways that we need to be establishing anyways where we are helping with these basic needs and i don't know about you but there's a lot of people in my neighborhood that actually do need those basic needs met. Like, yeah. and I think that's all over the country. And I think, um, you know, there's ways for us to get involved and um, to maybe just try and change our mindset a little bit to be more about mutual aid. The other thing about mutual aid, I will say too, for people who are listening or maybe like me and don't understand the background is usually it is led by people who are, um, you know, experiencing the most oppression, right? And so that would be like, if there's people experiencing houselessness in your neighborhood, right? You go and ask them what they need. You don't assume what they need, right? That's another hallmark of mutual aid. So just just put that out there. Um, Damon, thank you so much for coming on here to talk to us. I, would, I just, really quick, is there anything else that came to your mind when I asked you the question about spiritual practices? I want to make sure you get a chance hmm. to say what you want to say. Yeah, I'll say a spiritual practice that I've started recently is just basic relaxation meditations, which 
I know many are familiar with, and it's super simple once you start doing it, which is like there's guided meditations that start about relaxing like the top of your head to your forehead, your face, throat, uh, abdomen, all the way down and just relaxing each part of your body one by one. And there's people talking about slowing down your brain waves and all that. And then it gets into pseudoscience and manifestation and some stuff that is a little weird, but the basic thing under that, which you'll find many places is, Oh yeah. It is better to make decisions when you are in a relaxed state. And just that basic truth has been huge for me, especially over this last year of working on my first book and uh, now trying to promote it and think about all that has been really stressful and realizing I I think a natural pattern that I got into was if I could just keep my mind running really fast, then I'll be really creative and realize that I'm actually able to be more creative and make better decisions and able to view my life with more wisdom if I'm in a relaxed state. And I think that also can help us also really question the status quo, question basic things in our everyday life that we look over and accept and tolerate when we need to speak against it, when we're able to be in a relaxed state, not be affected by everything around us and actually see our life and our world for what it actually is. And yeah, so I've been practicing that and it's been really helpful and I'm excited to continue on that journey. I love that. That is so wonderful. Thank you for sharing. And you you do have some like pretty relaxed vibes you're giving off. So I'm like, <laughs> and I know I fall into this trap and I think some people who are leftists or maybe people who are just deconstructing, right? We can just be in this frantic state of like, there's yeah. so much wrong with the world. If I calm down i'm a part of the problem right because we don't want to be a part of the problem but literally nothing good comes from an overtaxed nervous system and so i've mm. been like focusing a lot on taking care of my nervous system uh i just have to because i'm in um, autistic burnout currently so i'm like i have mm. to learn those skills to be able to do even a tenth of what i used to be able to do and so it was forced upon me but it's really cool to hear you saying like this is just going to be helpful. I, I just think for anybody who wants to be even a little bit activist-y, anybody who wants to be a little bit progressive, there's got to be a ton of attention on calming down your nervous system and learning how to take care of that. So thank you for mentioning it. I think that's so great. Um, where where can people find you? I know um, obviously they can watch your YouTube videos, which are wonderful. And I really recommend people get your book. It's not coming out till August, but they can pre-order right now. Yeah. Um, the God Who Riots. It's just like... like I just want everyone. I just want everyone to read it. And I'm like, I bet there's going to be a lot more riots in our future. <laughs> yeah. so this is going to be a good book. Is that bad to say? <laughs> that, that's what happens. The, I mean, the more oppression continues, of course, it's a natural consequence. So yeah, my uh, book, um, you can look up The God Who Riots by anywhere you buy books. And I'm on YouTube, youtube.com slash Damon Garcia. Also on Instagram and Twitter at who is Damon because Damon Garcia is taken because Garcia is way too common of a name everywhere. So there's that who is Damon and yeah, follow me. Uh, let me know if you listen to this episode and uh, go pre-order Unruly Saint by DL Mayfield November coming out. It's also going to be great. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that <laughs> last part. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, thank you for having me.
Yeah. It, was, it was really awesome.